I'm excited to let you know that the sponsor for the podcast for the month of August is Buck Knives. We're doing a really great giveaway, the Buck 119 and the Buck 112. I personally own both of these knives, and they're fantastic, and I love the Buck Company, Christian Company, with every single box you get, you get the message of salvation on a little card and a call to repentance. It's just fantastic. Listen to their ad and then enjoy the show. Every hunter knows that it's not about the success, it's all in the pursuit. The new Pursuit series of fixed blades and folders by Buck Knives has you covered. Proudly made in the USA, the Pursuit series is available in two sizes, large with or without a gut hook and small. The non-slip handle will keep your knife comfortably in hand while you process your harvest. Gear up for the season at BuckKnives.com. While you're there, use promo code BUCK20 at checkout and save an extra 20%. For a limited time, offer expires September 1, 2019. Valid only at BuckKnives.com. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Well, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited to have with me uh, my friend Jared Wilson. Jared, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Jared. It's good to talk to you. Good deal. Well, let's pray and then ask the Lord's help. And then I've got a lot of questions for you. And we'll just kind of see where the Lord leads. Sure. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for a friend and, and a brother and Jared. And I've just learned so much from him over the last, it's going on eight or nine years now. And so I'm thankful for how you've used him in my life and in more ways than he even realizes. And I'm just thankful for this opportunity. And so just lead as we talk about life, pastoral ministry, family, uh, just some, some fun things, just lead the discussion. And I pray that it'd be helpful for everybody that's listening in. And Holy Spirit, I just, just shine a big spotlight on Jesus. And I trust that you're going to. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. For those that may not know who you are, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Jared, your family, and then what it is that you do? Yeah. So um, I'm married to Becky. We've been married 23 years uh, this last June. So just started our 24th year of marriage. Uh, we have two daughters, Macy and Grace. Macy is 18. She'll start college in the fall. Uh, actually, up in about three weeks, we'll be driving her up to Pennsylvania. She's going to school up there. And uh, then we have a 16-year-old daughter named Grace. And uh, we're from Houston area originally, uh, but we've lived all over. We did. We planted a church in Nashville, Tennessee. We were in Nashville for 12 years. I uh, pastored a church in Vermont for six years. And now we just entered our fifth year uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. And I serve at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, for the first four and a half years or so, uh, I served in the communications department in a position called Director of Content Strategy, which is basically glorified writer, editor, uh, anything related to text coming out um, of, of the seminary communications department. So I was the chief editor of the of the. Midwestern Magazine, uh, managing editor uh, for the church, which is the seminary's uh, resource website, and uh, you know blog posts and those sorts of things, and all sorts of other things. But recently, I've moved over to faculty full time. So um, right now, I'm teaching at the college. Um, I'm, I'm assistant professor of pastoral ministry. So my main area is pastoral ministry and pastoring at the undergraduate level. Just started my doctoral program, getting my doctor of ministry. 
And uh, once you have enough hours in that, you can teach at the seminary level. So you have to have a certain number of hours into doctoral to teach at the one level lower than you. So um, yeah, so I'm serving in the college um, for right now and um, also author in residence at Midwestern Seminary, um, which has been uh, a really neat opportunity for me. And I write books and I travel and speak and yeah, do all sorts of things. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Several things. Uh, I, I think the first time that I heard of you is when I found out that you were fake John Piper on Twitter. Uh, it was at the Journey St. Louis, and it might have been the first event that you actually spoke at outside of kind of your regional area in Nashville. I think you were still in Nashville at the time, but it, I think Jonathan McIntosh brought you up or something like that. Yeah, you know, actually, that was my very first speaking engagement, my very first book. So that was 10 years ago this year. It was 2009. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, and it was around this time. It was August. I had I, I had just moved to Vermont. In fact, okay, uh, I was in I'd been in Vermont maybe a month or so. It was a Acts twenty nine regional event there at the Journey, and it it was it was Jonathan. I had been in touch with him a little bit before we had gotten to know each other online, and uh, he read Your Jesus Is Too Safe, which was my first book, mm -hmm. and uh, so he had me come, and that was my first speaking engagement. Uh, I remember, in fact, you know, because I was booked before I moved to Vermont okay. and in the interview process uh, with the search team, I was saying to them, Hey, look, I have this book coming out in 2009 and I've got the speaking engagement and that may be it that, you know, that just may be one, you know, um, opportunity. But if the Lord continues to open those doors, I would love to, you know, step through them. I, you know, I, I do feel called in some way to um, certainly writing ministry, but if, you know, if the Lord wills uh, speaking ministry as well, and so that was something that I was actually working through um, with the church. So it was me and Bob Thune um, yeah, yeah. At, that, at that regional. And it was great. I mean, that's the first time I met Bob. And um, it was the first time I'd met Darren as okay. well. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a very formative event for me. Opened yeah. a lot of doors for me. That, that was neat. I, I do remember that meeting you. And then that Bob Thune busted out that gospel chart, the holiness of God and the holiness <laughs> yeah. of man and, and that was in the gospel-centered life. That was really Really helped. So that was a memorable event for, for us too. So very cool. Good. Uh, and then I actually drove all the way up to, uh, you had a buddy that was pastoring a church in Ohio, like uh, um, somewhere in Columbus or something Gahanna. like that. Gahanna. Yeah. Steve Gahanna. Manger. Yeah. Yeah. Gahanna. Gahanna. Um, yeah. <laughs> and right. my buddy drove in my truck, my 1999 Ford Ranger went all the way for gospel wakefulness conference. And I remember this. Yeah. That's right. Remember that? In like a little room. It was like us, we were the only ones other than their ministry, like their church was there, like all their leaders and stuff. And then here's me and Ryan, you know, there. And <laughs> Yeah, I think that was either the first, it might have been the second, but it was one of the first gospel wakefulness conferences. Uh, so it would have been right after that book came out, which was 2011. Okay. And um, yeah, I mean, the book came out in 2011. So it would have been after, it would either have been that year or shortly thereafter. Okay. Uh, but I did a conference in Conroe, Texas, a gospel wakefulness conference, and then there for Steve at, at New Life Church in Gahanna, okay. Ohio. And so that would have been the first or second one of those. Yeah. So, man, you just keep showing up yeah. at these sort of man. seminal events for me. That's yeah. right, so. man. I, I just I just keep following you. And, and it's been really neat because, you know, over the years, and I mentioned, I did mention this in my prayer, but, uh, man, I've just learned so much from you. And it's been really neat. To, the, the Actually, the one book that I haven't read from you is the is Your Jesus is Too Safe. That's the one oh, book. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. So I need to get, I have it. It's on my shelf. I've just not got around to it. So. There's only a little bit of heresy in there. Okay. Uh, just a little bit. I can deal with yeah, that. I've, I've weeded all that out since then. So, okay. Well, I have some questions from, from another, uh, uh, 
heretic, uh, Eugene Peterson here in a little bit that, that I'll throw you away about, okay. about him. Uh, actually, I don't know if I put that in my final questions, but I have it in my, in the Rolodex in my mind that may, may come your way. So tell us if you would, each person I have on, I, I, uh, interview, I ask them questions about their internal and external call into ministry. A lot of the listeners are younger and are kind of navigating those things. And, and maybe you're expecting a lightning bolt in the sky, uh, you know, a, a significant, word from the Lord in some way. Explain to us, if you would, what that internal call was like for you and that external process into ministry was. Yeah, well, it really did begin um, with a, an external call in the sense of not circumstances, not anyone in my life, but this alien thought um, from, you know, from the Lord. So there wasn't an aspiration. There wasn't an internal call in that sense where you know, anyone who aspires to the task of, uh, you know, overseer is aspiring to a noble thing. Like that wasn't there for me. There was no pressure on me. I didn't come from a ministry family. I grew up in the church. Um, you know, my parents were believers, raised me in the faith, but I don't come from a line of preachers or pastors. There was just no outside uh, expectation of that. So there was no one that I thought, man, I, I need to think about this. But it was at a youth camp. Um, it was between my se um, seventh and eighth grade years at uh, in junior high, and it was uh, Camp Zephyr, which is near Corpus Christi, Texas. And I had just gotten up one morning to go do my morning devotions, and really, you know, honestly, um, what I, even like my morning devotions, I was trying to impress a girl. Like that was sort of the, um, you know, I had a crush on the pastor's daughter, and I thought maybe if she sees how spiritual I am. Right. And um, it's camp. So you have all these things, you know, working. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I was just reading about the call of Moses and the burning bush, his sort of negotiating with the Lord and something about reading that that one morning at youth camp just resonated in, in, in my mind. Um, part of it was the the deflection the self-deprecation of, of Moses really clicked for me, even as a, as an adolescent, um, he, you know, I'm slow of speech. I was a stutterer from kindergarten all the way into college. So there was something about that, that he was being called despite his being slow of tongue, whether he was a stutterer or not, I'm not sure if that was a speech impediment or just him saying he's not eloquent. I was a stutterer. So I'm reading that and that's like flashing in my, in my brain, mm. all the things about like, who am I, the issues of identity, of confidence, of assurance, all of that just sort of like distilled in for me in that moment. And this alien thought came into my brain, I'm supposed to be in ministry. Mm. And again, I, you know, I, I, my inclination was this is from the Lord because mm. I'd never thought of that before. I wasn't angling for that. Now the external, um, you know, sort of, you know, affirmation, which is, you know, obviously necessary for people to affirm and confirm, not just your gifts, but your calling began that very week. So, you know, I grew up in a culture where there's an invitation at, at every event, right? Come forward and, you know, get saved for the eighth time or whatever it is and rededications. And I'd done all of that. I'd heard countless invitations at the end of that week. Of course, there was an invitation at the end of camp. And as part of the invitation, I'd never heard this in my life. Again, growing up in an invitation culture, never heard this. I'm not saying it was never said. I just never heard it. Um, but I don't think it was said often. The fellow giving the invitation said, if you believe the Lord has called you into ministry this week, will you come forward? And I thought, man, I never heard that before. And yeah, that's me. Hmm. And so that was like my first inclination of like, maybe this is actually something from the Lord. 
Yeah. And I went forward. There was a, it was a camp probably of about 600 kids, 500, 600 kids, probably it was different churches had brought, you know, and just two people went forward in response to that. Me oh, wow. and the pastor's son from, from my church were the only two who went forward. Uh, he's not in ministry today, you know, in vocational ministry anyway. Okay. Um, but I went home thinking this is what I'm doing and was just very, uh, um, blessed to have by in the Lord's kindness, youth pastors who took that seriously while I was a teenager, who took me under their wing, who let me shadow them, follow them, who affirmed my gifts. Mm. Um, like, yeah, no, you're not crazy. You, yeah. you do have the ability to you know, communicate the scriptures. You do have this heart, you know, for the church and just develop that. So that was kind of the, the open doors, pastors who would mentor me, take me seriously, give me opportunities. All of that just gradually confirmed for me that, yeah, it, it, it wasn't an adolescent kind of crazy idea. Um, and that's kind of how the internal external kind of merged yeah. for me. Man, that's fantastic. It's always so good to hear that there are people who have an experience that was healthier than the experience that I had, which is a feeling of a call into ministry. And then a, by the minutes, the pastors that were around me, a, it was almost like a shunning or it was a, they were very, very nervous about anybody being called into ministry and they had yeah. never ordained anybody. And to hear that there was people that came alongside of you. I just entered, uh, interviewed Noah Oldham last week and he said the exact same thing, that there were people that rallied around him and encouraged him and, and, and kind yeah. of fanned that into flame, which is no. fantastic. Yeah, I would say I did have an experience um, early on in ministry, probably my first year. Um, I was probably, yeah, so I started in, in ministry roles the summer I graduated high school. So uh, that would have been 17, 18, 19 years old. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it would have been 94. So I would have been 18, about to turn 19. Okay. And the second ministry position I had, I served under guys that it, it felt like psychological warfare. Hmm. and I, I really wanted them to mentor me and they um, I mean shunning would be to, you know to put it lightly I'm getting grilled over lunch on on, on different things wow. one guy tells me I probably shouldn't be in ministry so I don't mean to paint the picture like everybody was just so helpful. yeah right the, there was one set one role in particular that almost like I, I you know I almost gave it up because I wow. just thought if this is what it's like I, I don't want to be a part of it but it was a fellow who had been my youth pastor before um, who left to plant a church and we left the church that we were in that, you know, my wife and I both just felt, um, you know, we were dating at the time. We just felt um, oppressed in some way and mm-hmm. kind of cast out. And we, we went to the church plant and I, I, I served as a youth pastor under my old youth pastor. Okay. And that, that circumstance really in a sense saved my ministry. Okay. Um, yeah. That, I mean, that guy just, he was kind of my first mentor really and opened up a lot of doors for me. So I did go through that, like, Oh, these guys are saying I shouldn't be doing this, Mm -hmm. but I had to reason through, they don't really even know me. They've never heard me teach for one thing there. I honestly still don't know what their problem was. One of the fellows Mm -hmm. eventually had a a moral failing. Um, his, you know, his ministry crashed and burned, cheated on his wife. The other fellow almost 20 years later, I'm not making this up almost 20 years later, reached out and apologized to me. Wow. It's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, so the Lord tells really interesting stories. Yeah. No kidding. So this is a little bit off script, but I think it can be helpful to to a lot of people. So over the years we had these positive and negative examples of of people that we want to be like in ministry. So things we want to replicate and remember, okay, that's biblical. That's hopeful. I want to do that. 
and then the task of positively learning from the negative. And it sounds like that's what you've had to do to where it's like, I don't want to do that. I'm never going to do that to somebody. So how long did it take you to kind of look back in that negative experience at the church and say, okay, God, thank you that you, that that just didn't happen to me, but that was for me in a sense that I've learned to never do that to somebody again, you know, not to not repeat that. Did it take you a while to kind of look back with some, some level of thankfulness that God was using that to shape you as well as the positive things? Yeah, actually it was probably, um, almost 10 years before I could forgive. Uh, well, I won't say I could, it was 10 years before I did. Okay. Um, it, it really, I, I harbored a lot of bitterness and resentment about that situation long after I was even in it, you know? So I was like in the third church or my, you know, third ministry position since that time hmm. and just woke up one day still thinking about it. That's how profound a, a hurt it was. Yeah. And there's all kinds of connections. Like there's connections to the church I grew up in, family, all sorts of things. So it wasn't just like it was this, I met these guys and then that was it. It, it really was in some sense a part of my formative experience, which is why it was so hard to shake. Yeah. But I just woke up one day and thought, I'm giving these guys power over me. And they're not thinking about me every day. You know what I mean? Like, right. Things are so long past. I'm right. I've adopted this kind of bitter victim mentality. And I just need to, I just need to forgive them. And that didn't mean calling them up and saying, you know, it just meant letting it go, mm. um, assigning it to the Lord. Hey, I trust you to handle this. I'm not going to let this rule my emotions and my affections, you know, anymore. I'm not going to let this dictate how I think of my relationship with you, how I think about the church or even how I think about them. I'm just going to assign, um, whatever virtue I can, uh, mm-hmm. and think charitably about it and just let it go. Yeah. And then it was another eight, nine years later that one of the guys, um, you know, reached out to put, and, and if, so here's the thing, here's how I know myself. Um, I think pretty well, if that fellow who, who had messaged to apologize, if he had done it before I had, you know, forgiven them, Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I would have received it. Well, I, I mm. think I probably would have laid into him like, you know, dang, right. You should apologize. Yeah, it's you know? about time. But, but <laughs> exactly. But by the time he did it, which, Let's be honest. It's way yeah, that's late. That's a that's an overdue apology. Yeah. By the time he did it, I was in a position to be able to say, you know what, brother, I forgive you. Just no praise God. No big awesome. deal. You know what I mean? And I, and so it was almost like I needed to be in a certain position to even hear. Yeah. You know the apology. I think. Which is huge, and I think a lot of folks, if you're in ministry long enough, uh, you're going to experience this, you know experience situations like that where it's going to require forgiveness, like giving forgiveness without being fully reconciled, where the other yeah. side who sinned against you isn't yet ready for that. And uh, I think that's, I mean, hugely uh, helpful for for people who are going to be listening in. Now I know a little bit of your story, um, and through your writing and just through hearing you talk about gospel wakefulness and your gospel wakefulness moment, which is just so profound. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about that, and I'm going to ask you. I'm put you on the spot here a little bit, but have you ever read Joy Unspeakable yet by Lloyd Jones? No, I have not. I know. Hey, read that book, man. I'm I know you keep connecting gospel wakefulness to his view of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Is well, that of the Holy Spirit. That's it. The wording is important for him. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. Yes, because that's yeah. the biblical language for it, and he's okay. he's very uh, he's very adamant about that. But not stylistically, it's not the same. But the 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 concept, I think, because his, his nuance with baptism with the Holy Spirit. Is different than 
the Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Spirit in the okay. But okay. it so resonated with me because I read I read Gospel Wakefulness I think in 2010 or whenever it was written, and then uh, Joy Unspeakable and some just trying to pinpoint what you put handles to. What was that when the gospel came alive to me? I'd been walking with Jesus for several years, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just I mean shined up you know this this massive light on Christ and just exploded joy in my heart what was that and you put handles to that for me and then Lloyd Jones did, did as well but would you just talk to us about your gospel wakefulness movement moment and then just how that all kind of came about and ended up in the book form yeah so you know the the principle or the what I lay out as gospel wakefulness in the book is really precipitated by um, a couple of things, two ingredients, if you will. One is a profound experience of the gospel. So you hear the message um, in perhaps in a mundane or ordinary way, um, but it's as if you've heard it for the first time. And that happens at the, in the context of, a kind of profound brokenness. So a profound experience of the gospel in the midst of a profound experience of brokenness. And there's something about that intersection of hearing the word of grace, this, the sufficiency of grace and the supremacy of Christ that is announced to us among many things in, in the good news of Jesus at the same time as um, uh, a palpable, undeniable sense of your own insufficiency Mm-hmm. and and neediness and 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 helplessness so um, i'm drawing to some extent from first um, thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 you became imitators of us and of the lord uh, because you received the word in the midst of much affliction and with the joy of the holy spirit so for me what precipitated it was just a total train wreck of of my life e- everything's broken mm-hmm. my job aspirations ministry aspirations uh, my marriage uh, just my heart and my life. I went through a period of depression and um, suicidal ideation, um, all, all those things. And it, so it wasn't that I didn't know what the gospel was. I believe that I was a believer. I believe that I was a Christian. I could be wrong about that. I want to be honest enough to say I, I could have been saved in this moment and, right. and um, I might be still, uh, but I believe I was a believer. And in the middle of this, um, just sort of crying out to God, who was my only hope in those days, there was one night in particular, uh, I was living in the guest bedroom of our, of our home there in Nashville. And uh, almost every night I spent just praying and asking God to fix it. I didn't even know what to do. I was out of, out of resources and asking the Lord to just fix it, fix me, fix this situation and, and save me. And, one night out of many of doing that, it was like the hand of God reached down and grabbed a hold of me. And I heard the message of the gospel, mm. not for the first time, but as if for the first time. And it was like the lights came. I mean, it was like a personal revival is kind of how I describe gospel wakefulness. It's revival on the individual scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like, I came to myself like the prodigal son and my circumstances didn't change immediately but I was changed Mm -hmm. and it was, it was essentially, I think today um, I still would use the same definition and the same descriptors, but I think it's it's when someone becomes gospel centered from the affections, 
and not simply intellectually. Because there's a lot of guys who are intellectually gospel-centered, which is better than not being gospel-centered at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they're intellectually gospel-centered, uh, but not yet in their affections. Like they see yeah. the value of it theologically. Perhaps they see Christ-centered teaching as important from the Bible. But until devotionally, until affectionately, you see, man, this is it. The gospel's yeah. grounds of my justification and the fuel for my sanctification. Until you see that and, and for lack of a better word, feel that, um, it's just not as powerful as yeah. just having it intellectually. Yeah, it's so huge. And that, for those who've not read the book, Gospel Wakefulness, I just encourage you to do it because it really it really does. For those who have not, I'm going to just say experienced it, but that's kind of a, uh, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to talk about without, um, you know, wondering, okay, have I been gospel awakened or not? Yeah. Or, you know, it's kind of hard to even get, even though you've written the book and you can read it and you can think through it and it does answer some questions and it, it brings some handles. There are also some questions that kind of hang in the air also about, um, you know, it, and there's always more of the grace of God to experience. So I, I just encourage anybody to, to read it, just to go out and read it, dive into it, and then just pray that God would, you know, rip those things that we know intellectually down into our heart and then keep it there where our heart is moved. And, and, uh, it was, it was quite helpful for me. And, uh, but yeah. thanks for telling that man, being honest about that and yeah, God meeting you in that. Okay. Now, so you've, you've, you've had this moment and it changes kind of your perspective on, on ministry. Again, I'm kind of pulling from things that I've heard from your story and read from your books, but you're pastoring. And, and I just have a question about pastoral ministry because you seem to be, you seem to talk about pastoral ministry. They're kind of like four horsemen for me of, of, of modern day pastors that seem to think differently about pastoral ministry. You, S, Zach S. Wine, Mark Dever, and, and the recently deceased Eugene Peterson. And these now in different ways. Okay. Yeah. Clearly. But um, gosh, what company to put me in brother. I, I, and, and I could throw Doug Wilson in there too. Uh, and <laughs> it for different reasons, but, uh, um, but all of these guys just think, and, and I, I think the, the common denominator is that not being strapped down by just the, the appeal of the day to uh, pop Christian ministry. Um, for, for all things new and flashy. But where did you learn? I mean, I think in one sense we could say from the scriptures, but where did you learn how to be a pastor? Like what to do, not just preaching on Sunday morning, but Monday through the rest of the week or whatever days you took off? Who taught you pastoral ministry? Yeah, I mean, that aspect of it, really nobody did. Um, you know, in when I was serving under different guys, um, I was not being intentionally trained to be a lead pastor or to be a, um, you know, a functioning elder. Uh, eventually it was, um, mainly in kind of the attractional model. And so I was doing student ministry, then young adult ministry. And it wasn't until, I mean, I kind of had to learn on the job. And so the experience for me of gospel wakefulness um, that was probably the, the biggest outside influence in terms of, yes, the word of God, but also just the humbling and the attention arresting of grace, mm. which um, changed my disposition. So this whole, you know, the gospel centered movement, right, or the young restless reform, whatever it used to be, and, you know, whatever is still kind of laying around from that. Um, like, yeah, I, I was a part of that, but it wasn't like I didn't know it existed. Until, um, you know, so this thing happened to me and, um, 
you know, there wasn't certain books I went and read or podcasts that I was like, Oh, this seems like a cool thing that I should be a part of. Or it was just, I remember seeing Colin Hansen's Christianity Today article because it was on our friend's coffee table. Mm-hmm. And I'm in this attractional church and I just picked up the magazine and started reading. And I was like, man, I think this is like me. I think this is talking about the, the stuff that I'm interested in. So even when I was thinking through how do you do ministry in a gospel centered way, um, my disposition was not shaped by my environment. It was shaped by what the Lord had done for me and in me. And then these sort of external um, cues, people I was listening to or reading, uh, namely John Piper, but others as well. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together was like mm-hmm. a huge um, paradigm shifting book for me. And I read that when I was in the, in the middle of this attractional megachurch in a consumeristic and individualistic environment, very pragmatic, read that little book. And that shaped my heart even more towards community and what the kind of sensibility I would need to have as a shepherd. Mm-hmm. So then I've got this young adult ministry. Um, it ends up being a church within a church, but not by our design, but I was leading that and they essentially became this flock. And that I started learning kind of just the impulse of protection Okay. and feeding from that group because we were in the middle of this sort of attractional behemoth and I'm protecting them from the values of the mothership <laughs> and uh, acting as this kind of go between. And eventually we had the blessing of the mothership to their credit, um, the blessing to leave and become a church plant. And now I've got these sheep that I'm responsible for. And that was kind of my first just day by day, how do I care for these people? Mm-hmm. And I had the, um, you know, the sensibility or the, the impulse at least to keep it very simple. I didn't think we got to have much programs. And right. so I did every, I did everything in church planting in suburban, uh, you know, Bible belt that you shouldn't do, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that you actually should do. Right. So I kept it simple, worship gathering community and, and uh, community service. We were on mission. Okay. So I just thought if I limit it to these things, I'll be able to focus on what really matters. And then it was when I moved to Vermont and, and began pastoring a, a 200 plus year old church. Um, you know, guys in ministry, especially if you don't have a plurality of elders, or even if you do, but you're the only vocational guy. Um, a lot of times how, what you learn Monday through Friday is dictated by the, the culture, the size of your church, um, the nature of your community, Um, all those sorts of things. But one thing that I learned early on was, yeah, so my culture, my community, my, you know, the context, rural Vermont, that's going to dictate to some extent what I can and can't do or or what I ought to prioritize or not prioritize, I guess I should say. But I, I knew early on, I need to kind of take, I need to be proactively in control of my, of my schedule. Um, so that I can effectively minister. Mm-hmm. And so what I did, and no one ever told me to do this, Jared. So I don't know. It, it's not like I read it in a book or someone said, this is how you do Monday through Friday ministry. I just, it's just how my brain worked. And it was effective for me was to assign essentially a theme or a category of ministry to each day. Okay. And so Monday was largely at, you know, administration. I worked Mondays. It was largely administration, catch up, uh, responding to messages, all that sort of thing, planning out the week. Um, I had a meeting every Monday night, elders or deacons or men's discipleship. And, but that was the, largely Monday was just sort of 
Um, not a relationally intensive day because it's mm-hmm. tired from Sunday, yep. but just getting through, you know, phone, computer, everything else. Tuesday was um, what I would call um, ministry meeting days. So I did all my visitation in that context. You would mm-hmm. go do visits. A lot of contexts, you don't do that anymore. It's not necessarily something people want. Where I was, the older folks loved it. Younger folks loved it. So I had visitation um, every now and then, like hospital visits, nursing home, uh, counseling sessions, mm-hmm. all of that I would load into Tuesday. That's my relational heavy lifting day. Wednesdays was my writing and sermon prep day. Thursdays was my relational easy lifting day. So it would be leaders I'm developing. I'm going to have lunch with an elder or a meeting with an elder just to kind of catch up and do church business. But it's not a, it's not a taxing right. thing. Um, I'm not counseling somebody or, or, or what have you, um, go visit one of my church guys on their job. I had a lot of guys, they all worked outdoors. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, most of my guys were blue collar guys, so I could go with them to go, you know, on their trip to go get scrap metal or hang out with them on the job site or whatever right. it was. Um, and then, you know, Fridays and Saturdays I took off. Fridays were for me and my wife, Saturdays for my whole family. And that's generally how I looked at it. And obviously things come up, they creep in, emergencies, mm-hmm. you know, the dictates of the, of the schedule and ministry context, you know, ministry doesn't confine itself to a, an easy, you know, eight to five, um, you know, time slots. But in general, that's how I looked at my week. Yeah. And it was a way of, to, to just create a routine and a rhythm that was sustainable, where I'm prioritizing what I need to do. I'm meeting the requirements of me and yet I'm not letting ministry happen to me. I'm actually being proactive and intentional about my ministry. Fantastic. It's incredibly helpful. I love it. Now there's a lot of more questions for the sake of time. I want to kind of narrow it down and, and, uh, and kind of bring this to a close here in a little bit, but you're not in pastoral ministry anymore, even though you, maybe you are, I mean, you are an elder at a local church. I believe you, are you an elder right now? No, I'm not. You're not. Okay. So, it's so important in pastoral ministry, I think, for us at an identity level to know that we are Christian men before we're pastors. And if we're married and have children, we're husbands and fathers and and we're a friend before we are a pastor. And so in regards to identity, we need to have those things in order. How was it for you shifting out of pastoral ministry and now being at the seminary for the last five years? And I know you do training, you know, some training for pastors. But how has that been for you at an identity level? Did you kind of almost go through a withdrawal of being in pastoral ministry? How did that work itself out at a heart level for you, not being in pastoral ministry anymore? Yeah, I think I wouldn't, I don't know if I would use the word withdrawal, except maybe from the heart. Uh, it was very discombobulating because my plan was to be a pastor until I die. My plan was to be in Vermont um, until I die. And when my wife and I both believed that it was just a ministry season or it was, it was beginning to look like just a ministry season, that was very disorienting for me um, for a lot of reasons. I, I mean, I anticipated what some criticism could be, um, but it, it, it wasn't what we ended up doing, where, where I ended up coming and what I ended up doing where I came was not anything that I ever aspired to do or even, um, Mm -hmm. you know, thought about. My identity was wrapped up in pastoral ministry. So on one level, it was good for me to have that kind of stripped away or for me to submit to the Lord's 
um, leading to, to set it down on another, another level. It was, it was bad. And just uh, what I'm, I don't mean wrong. It's just bad in the sense that it, it, it messed me up and, yeah. and, and revealed some idols, um, for me, senses of identity and things that I've struggled with, like all my life, man, like identity, assurance, confidence. Those are things since I was a little kid that have always just been wrapped up in, in my mm-hmm. heart. So then I found this thing that I thought I was pretty good at and people confirmed that I was pretty good at and the ministry was flourishing um, there. So there was no reason to leave. There wasn't, nobody was asking, you know, like nobody was mad at me. I mean, right. they got mad after I resigned, mm-hmm. <laughs> but nobody was like mad at me. Before. Nobody was pushing me out. There was no sin issue that was, you know, driving me out that I needed to resign or anything like that. Um, and the church was growing and mm-hmm. you know, we had like tripled in, in, in six years. And, wow. Um, so like every, this is not when people resign, you know, mm-hmm. they do it when, you know, as you're killing the thing. So all of that was just for me, um, it was, it, it was a healthy trial okay. to kind of go through that and learn that the Lord really can be trusted with my reputation, with people's opinions and, and with my future. Wonderful. Now, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel that. I mean, it took a couple of years. And for people to stop asking the question, like, are you going to pastor again? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <Because> like, <laughs> like people would ask, like, are you going to pastor again? Or, you know, um, that sort of thing. And I just thought, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm a, I'm a hundred percent human being, even though I don't, if, even if I'm not doing that, yeah. um, the, you know, the, my sta- standing before the Lord is not contingent on whether I'm a pastor or not. So, Man. um, I just had to remind myself of the, of, of the gospel that way, but where we are now has been really great. The, I mean, the church we're in is number one healthy, but it's been really, um, a wonderful place for my family. My family has flourished there like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, even the roles that I've been in the seminary, when I first came to Midwestern, I was thinking this is just a season mm-hmm. and we'll get my kids out of school and then we can figure out what we want to do. And each year we've been there, we, I, I see us, us here, um, longer term. So I've got a vision for it. I wasn't thinking of teaching when I came. I thought I, I do not want to be in a classroom. Mm-hmm. That's just not for me. And here I am now, on uh, you know, full-time faculty. And so the Lord has really done some really kind and sweet things. Um, not just in, in my heart, but to kind of enlarge my vision yeah. for, for ministry. And that's the thing, like my fear is, so I'm teaching pastoral ministry. My fear is, am I going to be the seminary prof who is teaching either because he can't do it or he's just so out of touch because he hasn't done it. Right. And I, and I want to stay vigilant about that. Um, I think it's a little different in the fact that I didn't come to the seminary until after 25 years of, of church ministry. Right. Yeah. So it's not like I started out straight from seminary to teaching it and never having done it. But at the same time, I, I lead a residency at our church, young men training for ministry. I stay close to our pastors. I stay close to, um, I do a coaching cohort with pastors. So I'm, yeah. try, I'm trying to stay on the ground level. Essentially, I see what I'm doing as kind of pastoring pastors. And, and that's been really, um, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, it's a dream job for yeah. me. You know, um, I, I love pastors. I love the church. I love pastors who love the church. Mm-hmm. And as, as much as I can serve them, that just, it, it really fires me up to be able to do that. Good. I love it. That's great. Uh, two questions, two final questions. There's some sad news came out last couple of weeks. Joshua Harris, yet another. Uh, I, I think when we 
look big picture, we see pastors, I mean, him in this instance, apostatizing or, or leaving the faith and others, moral failures, whatever it may be. And on the ground level, actually where we're at in our cities, there's not as many pastors exploding, although there are a lot. But why do so many pastors burn out? Why does this happen so often? Yeah, it's probably different for each each different guy. Um, I mean, I know guys who the, there's no spectacular sin issue in their life um, in terms of they're not having an affair, they're not abusive, they're not, um, you know, there's no financial impropriety, and they burn out. Well, why? Because of this acceptable sin of never resting, of trying to serve as their church's functional Messiah. And many churches will enable that or, um, you know, accommodate that or expect that, um, you know, they don't have enough margin or rest in their life or they're not subsisting on the goodness of Christ. They're simply, you know, they've gotten into, um, you know, simply using, you know, they're going through the religious motions. And so they're just using the, the things of scripture for their job rather than actually feeding on them at, for personal nourishment. So there's all sorts of things that kind of, you know, play into that. Some of the more high profile, um, you know, crashings and burnings that we've seen um, seem to come from uh, this, this drug of self where you take, I, I think many times are already a narcissistic personality. Sometimes things that we don't quite see in the beginning, although some do, um, but you take that and then you add success to it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, we have caused, especially in church discipline cases, unrepentant church discipline cases, to say, "Were you ever really in this for people to know Jesus?" Or right. we, we thought you were, and maybe even good comes out of the ministry because the word will not return void. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it it just seems like you were really just kind of trying to build your own empire. Um, in retrospect, so I think identifying some of those things before they happen. The one thing that I would say about Josh Harris. Um, and uh, my colleague, Ronnie Kurtz, and I, we just discussed this this morning, recording a, an episode of the For the Church podcast that'll come out next week. So I don't want to say too much or I'll steal yeah. from, from our conversation. But the one thing that I will say, and I just said it on Twitter in response to the conversation, I haven't hardly said anything about Josh Harris on, on, on Twitter or social media, um, mainly because I don't know all the details. It, it's, it, you know, the, the whole thing is tragic and sad mm-hmm. and to renounce your faith is to put yourself in the crosshairs of the enemy to endanger yourself with the fires of hell. Um, we, we can say that with certainty. I don't know with certainty what is tomorrow is going to hold or, or the future just to say that he needs to repent and believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. And yet if someone's going to go through this, an announcement of divorce, an announcement of leaving the faith, um, if, if a pastor is going to do that, we would hope that it's, that they would resign their pastorate. Mm-hmm. We would hope that they would withdraw from public ministry. And Harris has done that. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, it sounds odd to say like, you know, not commending him for these decisions. Right. And, and I don't even know like about, you know, the divorce. We don't know anything about that. We don't know mm-hmm. the cause. We don't know if he, you know, both sides, we have, we know nothing. Like I can't even comment on. Yeah he's wrong to have divorced his wife. Well, maybe he did, maybe she divorced him or uh, we, we don't know. And he's just, you know, trying to, to make a, 
announcement that doesn't, you know, throw her, her under the bus or, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Maybe he did, you know, we, we just don't know anything about it to comment on that. Just mm-hmm. that it's sad and God hates divorce. Yeah. Um, so that's, so that's a tragedy. Renouncing your faith, um, you know, obviously that's a, a, a willful thing that we, we would want to caution him. Mm-hmm. We want him to be restored. Um, we want him to believe whether he wasn't ever a believer or he's in a season of doubt. We don't know. Yeah. You know the Lord knows that. But what I do want to say is if commend's not the right word, this is how it should be done if it's going to be done. Yeah. Rather than crashing and burning from this place of prominence, he did, um, I, I think, you know, for lack of a better word, the humble thing of resigning his pastorate several years ago. Mm-hmm. He's not been in ministry. Um, to some extent, he's a public figure because of who he was. Yeah. You know, he's not selling books. He's not speaking at conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not trying to capitalize on the evangelical marketplace. Right. Uh, as far as I know, I don't know his heart, but from what I see, his his public persona is because of who he was, mm-hmm. not because of what he is. So if, if someone is going to go through those things, I, I think we at least need to um, be grateful that he has set aside his ministry. Yeah. Um, and either anticipate, I don't know if he, he felt these ways you know, back then, but this is the best way for a terrible thing to take place. To yeah. take, I think. Well, that is, it's an interesting take. You've uh, kind of thrown the hook out. So I'll definitely be listening next week on the, on the podcast. <laughs> for the yeah. podcast. But I think it is, it is sorrowful. And, and that is a, a, an interesting take to say that at least there was some intellectual honesty and humility there where he didn't immediately write a book about the last five years and, and his, you know, uh, development and now he's on tour after making this announcement that it's not been that that way. So I, I, yeah, I mean everything that we that we can see whether he's a believer or not, and mm-hmm. he's saying he's not. I guess we just have to affirm he's not a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that we can affirm about an unbeliever, um, everything that we hate about these situations is when a guy crashes and burns from and brings disrepute on his church and. Mm-hmm leaves a smoking crater in his ministry. And here's a guy who has stepped aside from all of that before these moments. And um, as far as I can tell, has handled them um, with a measure of at least meekness in Mm -hmm. in it. I mean, I guess you could just see the social media stuff as, you know, arrogance and narcissism. And some people do, but everyone's on social media. Everyone's posting selfie. So, I mean, and in that regard, he's no different from anybody really Mm -hmm. um, with, with just a few exceptions. So I I don't even fault him for the social media post. I mean, Mm -hmm. you announce significant things in your life on social media. I mean, most people do. Right. He, you know, maybe he's thinking rather people hear this from me than hear it through the grapevine. Yeah. So I'm just going to put it out there. Um, even the way he announced the separation slash divorce. I think when he first announced it, he said separation uh-huh. and then later was confirmed divorce. Even the way he announced that in his mind, he's thinking, what is the best way to not air our dirty laundry, but share something that people are going to find out about anyway. Yeah. And, and, um, and do it in a way that honors my ex-wife that doesn't embarrass my children. Mm-hmm. And so it's got to be out there. I might as well take control and, and put out this statement. Yeah. And yeah, we can pick, we, we can nitpick how he said it and the words he used. And it's not a good thing. Um, it's, it's a terrible thing, but we don't know anything about yeah. 
the what went on behind the scenes. And so rather than speculate, I'm just going to look at it and go, if you're going to do it, um, if you're going to go through it, if you, if you have to go through it, this might be, um, I don't know what else he could have done. Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly. Well, that, that is some sad stuff. Let's end on a high note and just okay. tell, me, tell me why you love Jesus so much. <laughs> I mean, clearly because of his grace, but just talk about Jesus. Why do you love Jesus? Yeah. Well, I mean, biblically speaking, but also, um, personally speaking, because he loved me first. Yeah. And I, I know theologically that that's what makes sense of my love for him, that he put the love in me to respond to him with. But today, um, that still, ex that explains for me, uh, how, why I love him. And it's because he wasn't waiting on me to perform for him. Mm. He wasn't waiting for me to elicit his love. He wasn't waiting for me to measure up to his love. He just gave it and gave it before the foundation of the world. And when I, when I'm meditating on that and I, I know what a dirtbag I am, I know, well, I, I don't know the full extent, but I have a pretty good, um, clue that I don't measure up that, um, that I, I am lacking in so many areas and have a lot of uh, places to grow. And, and so if, if my ability to receive love or to be lovable is based on my performance, my deserving, then I'm in real trouble. Yeah. Right. And here's the God of the universe who is the most holy, uh, um, for whom no one ever measures up. Even the, the, the best person, is nothing compared to the holiness of God. And he says, I give my love to you unidirectionally without, without cause, except that he is love. He is yeah. the self cause cause. And just to meditate on that um, is kind of the epicenter for me of why I love Jesus. Yeah. Um, that I can spend time with him and he's not giving me a guilt trip about the times I haven't spent with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, he speaks to me freely. Every time I open up his word, he he's, there's no silent treatment. You know, he's, he's uh, the Holy spirit is sharing with me the you know, his love, um, you know, through the scriptures um, and that he would go all the way to the cross and die for me. Um, when I, you know, I'd barely cross the street for most people. <laughs> yeah. And here is, the Lord for a sinner like me saying, yeah, I'll go die for that guy. That's amazing. That, why wouldn't I love him? Yeah, that's so good. Well, man, I, I'm so appreciate making the time. This has been a lot of fun for those who want a little bit more of Jared C. Wilson, where can they find your books? They can find your podcast, well, all that kind of stuff, throw some people, uh, some info where, where they can find out more. Yeah. Links to everything are at jaredcwilson.com. Um, all my books are listed there. I've got links to the FTC podcast, to the For the Church site in general. Um, I still blog at the Gospel Coalition. I have a page called the Gospel Driven Church at the Gospel Coalition website. Um, so if you go to jaredcwilson.com, thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For Good care deal. and counsel, well, please call, thanks, text, Jared, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.